Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM, let's create. I know I performed femininity and it fed into the abuse cycle because I definitely took on a demure role in relationships of mine where I was not doing something to deserve the emotional abuse I was receiving, but I was just so complacent and not even following my own guiding light. Like I was just like, well, there's an intense masculine presence near me and I'm going to glom onto that. I think it's like all of us not performing our gender roles moving forward, which I don't know, maybe that's not feasible for us to work on changing, but like how can we get kids to slowly shift out of this, like these rigid boxes, which do not set up anybody for success. That was Zoe Ligon. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. I think if you look at last week's episode with Vigo Mortensen and this week's episode with Zoe Ligon, you have a pretty good sense of what uh, I'd like this show to be. I'd like to have an Oscar winner on and then uh, the next week, someone like Zoe, who has been a sex educator and writer and visual artist for uh, over five years now. You may be familiar with her work online. Uh, she has written a whole bunch for Refinery29. She's done stuff with Time Magazine, Yahoo Style, Pitchfork, and Ad Hoc. She's been really successful as this kind of public sex educator. 
and I felt it was time to have a larger conversation um, about sex in 2018, uh, at least on this podcast. I know in the outside world, it's, it's a conversation plenty of people are having with their friends, but I think publicly, at least on social media and, and in writing online and in podcasts even, I haven't heard much dialogue between a man and a woman about where we stand sexually in this Me Too era. Of course, the conversation also dives into uh, Zoe's background and how she got into this line of work and really how challenging it is to be a woman online in 2018 and not only be a woman online in 2018, but be a woman who openly and candidly talks about sex and, and her experiences and uh, I, I, I really deeply admire Zoe for the work that she does and for her perseverance because I, I really can't imagine doing what she does. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, it was a blast to record with Zoe. And uh, we're going to be off next week for the holidays. So if you have not listened to uh, some of our past episodes this year, you can find all of them on our website at talkeasypod.com. You can find them on iTunes. And also, now a new update, we are on Spotify at long last. So, finally, here is Zoe Ligon. We've had a lot of different kind of guests on. We've had Oscar winners. We've had Pulitzer Prize winners. Mm-hmm. We've had my mother, my father, best friends. We had some older actors in their 80s and 90s. We've had musicians. We've had a doula on. Cool. You are the first, and I'm not going to say only, but the first sex educator we've ever had on the podcast. It's an honor. It's, I mean, it's an honor to have you. How, uh, how do you feel? I, oh, geez. I had the laziest week of my life. <laughs> uh, today is the only day I haven't wake and baked this week. Oh. Yeah. In so preparation that... for this show. <laughs> sure. No, it's really, no, flatter me. It's totally fine. <laughs> um, yeah. So I feel I'm going back home to Detroit tomorrow. I'm here in lovely Los Angeles. <laughs> And it's been a really nice, relaxing time. I've been writing a book, uh-huh. a, a nonfiction sex education book, which probably will not come out for a very long time. So, mm. But I've just been doing a lot of nonfiction writing, specifically this week. Great. Been di- doing a deep dive on STDs, which I call STIs, because they're really just infections, not mm-hmm. diseases. All, not all of them. Anyway, lots of, lots of writing about <laughs> I have actually spent a, a good part of the day, three hours, reading a bunch of writing you uh, oh, did previously for Refinery Twenty. I'm so flattered. Look, dear Lord. Look, you're going to come to the house. I'm I'm going to be vaguely prepared. I'm not that well prepared. Three hours of reading my writing is um, pretty pretty hey, prepared. I went through a bunch of things. I have a lot of questions. Okay. You know, in in reading your writing, I noticed uh, maybe this is a I'm. I'm jumping too far ahead but jump ahead it seems like when it comes to personal boundaries you certainly have some i mean we don't know everything about you but there is a lot on the internet about you probably more than most people 
oh would God. share about themselves. So it would, <laughs> how do you draw the lines and in, in, in sort of picking and choosing what you put out? I think it's, that's such a great question because I am at a point where I'm like, oh my God, is, is nothing sacred? Um, and it's odd too, because the thing I, I concealed the most up until recently was like having a boyfriend. <laughs> but, um, but even that is public information now. And, and I really don't even think that there's a single thing you could ask me that I would hesitate to answer honestly, because I feel like my weak spots have been exposed lately or in the sense that the things that would upset me, it would be somebody being like, Oh, like you're a sex educator or like you like big dicks. Cause your dad didn't, you know, mm-hmm. fuck you hard enough. You slut. Like it's literally like, that is like the, the difficult portion of my job is like the people who are angry that you are a sex educator and want to try to disturb you and scare you away from talking about sex. Why do you think they, they're trying to do that? It threatens the entire structure of the society we have built on sex being shame and, and, and the, having it, there being a sense of fear around it because it's so much easier to control people when they're afraid. Mm. And I think that sexual freedom has been restricted for so long. I mean, and we're the, in the United States, we're such a new com- country. Co- I was going to say company, but we're a pretty new company, too. Freudian slip. <laughs> so... I think it goes beyond like the puritanical values and stuff that we were founded upon and and is is really just like oh yeah the people who are currently running the show right now it's not in alignment with the agenda in so many ways. Mm. What is the agenda? Cuz there's a larger conversation that I think uh, a lot of people have been having with their friends, not publicly, but Mm -hmm. we can do it publicly because I think we're both interested in being transparent. Yes. Which is that um, in this Me Too era, which is a phrase Mm -hmm. I I, I really hate, but in the current climate, I am interested in how you feel the world around us is affecting people's sexual appetites, sexual desires. I mean, what do you make of all that? I think we need to take it back to the advent of free streaming porn on the internet because I think that that lays the groundwork for where we are at right now with sex influencing our behaviors because porn is not inherently evil but the way it is wielded can be pretty damaging and uh, (laughs) so we actually have a generation the you know, people born during and after Y2K. (laughs) Um, Having less and less sex than the generation before Mm -hmm. for the first time. And a lot of that is because we are so stimulated. And and this goes, you know, with smartphones and everything. There's so many ways to access sexual content with no context that, I mean, what do you do if you, like, what are you supposed to make of it if you are just absorbing, like, sexual uh material yeah and there's there's no way of understanding it and now you know young kids are 
if you have access to a smartphone, you have access to porn. Mm. And then without the context of like, okay, well, BDSM can look quite violent, but in reality, there's a lot of consent going on. And like those, none of that is covered unless you're watching kink.com, which is a great website because <laughs> they like to go through the negotiation. We're just giving them a free plug here. So let me just, <laughs> I'm, I will free plug kink.com eternally. <laughs> um, <laughs> So having the lack of context and education to get us to where we are now, we have people who have this shame-oriented, fear-oriented opinion of sex. And and then you, you drop something like public call-outs, and it just turns into a frenzy. And even I didn't know how to properly interact with what was happening during Me Too. I would totally do things differently if that moment could be had over again. But it, okay, so it's not a moment. It was, Me Too was started by Tarana Burke in, I want to say, a long time ago. It's been around for a long time. It was supposed to be for black women and girls to have a movement to get behind in speaking out against sexual abuse. And, you know, white Hollywood co-opted that. I, I think I'm having a hard time answering it too because some there's some really close people in my life right now currently going through a public outing and this is more than a year later. So I guess I, I call it like post me too, mm-hmm. um, because it has happened and everything's still adjusting and, oh God, it, it's, a, it, I have such intense emotional reactions to it too, because I have called somebody out and, Oh, it's just such a fucking shit show. Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, you are. Okay, I'll swear it up. It's so emotionally disturbing to just even hear other people going through the process of calling somebody out because I just know so in the way my body shut down the week of the internet being like, oh, you were just doing this for attention and, and all that. And all of the backlash and, and things people have to say when you're already being so vulnerable. So I guess I, I just have such a, a personal guttural reaction into specifically public call outs, but there's nothing new about this. We're just having the language to talk about it for the first time. And I think one of the more disturbing things for me to witness as well is people who have been victims of sexual assault just now putting words to their experiences so it's like the assaults have already happened but now you're you're seeing it in a full spectrum of light or like with with more tools now and that mm. is so disturbing to witness myself included uncovering things that have ha- happened in our past and now being like no I was violated or I was raped or whatever it is just not seeing it as Oh, you know, there was a misunderstanding and your penis slipped inside of me, which is, oh, God, the way so many of us talk to ourselves. And especially when you're not socialized to be a man in this world, you are constantly deferring to, oh, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At least I am. I'm so emotional. And I think what I like about education, about sex, is it's never me giving an objective viewpoint. I mean, I can do that, but that's very boring. So immediately it's like, here's the way I personally experience this thing. Maybe you can identify with it, but mm. here's my thoughts. Whew, that wasn't, a, that still wasn't an answer, but uh, there you go. That was not bad at all. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> we hit so many things here. Um, I, I, I don't know how to address all of them uh, efficiently and in a way that feels whole, but... Um, you don't have to, because it's really going to just eternally evolve. Yeah, I will. I think the best part about all of this is that women are coming forth and they are feeling like there's a, a community and some people behind them. There's still people who are going to say, you know, the, the sort of derogatory comments that you've been getting for a long time. <laughs> but I think at large, I do think more people are buying it. And I hate to talk about it in that way. Yeah, but it, but, you do need to sell it. <laughs> but that's what it is, right? It's, 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 uh, it's public consumption. It's news. Yeah. And people's stories are being blown up into a thing that is being consumed on the internet. So it's almost content, which is really disgusting. That's a very cool way of putting that because I think it plays into America, the American celebrity trope of we want to build this person up and then watch them burn. They can't just get to the top and mm. happily exist there. Yeah, And it turns into oh, so much more than, than, than about the accusation itself or I mean, even look at the language I choose to use in talking about it. Even the language I use around it is reflective of the way the world talks about it. Right. I mean, as you can imagine on the other side of this, I'm pretty careful. I'm trying to be careful while also still trying to find the balance of having an honest conversation about it because I've had friends who have accused and been accused of and, you know, what happens online happens online, but you have to kind of grapple with it in real life because people mm. don't go away. That it's not like it's not like a Twitter account that's literally just deactivated and it's gone. It's like the person still you exists. You can't delete the person. And honestly, I think it's really dangerous the way kicking people out of a community can happen because it's like people. This is such. I keep coming hitting this wall of being like this is such a new thing that we're working through, but it isn't. But it is like taking out the trash for somebody else to handle mm-hmm. um, when you kick somebody out of a community sometimes. But that needs that needs to happen. And to just zoom out even further, it's like we don't have the education, but we also don't have the mental health care system. Because I don't think, I mean, and then it, like let's talk about our jail system. Because uh, no, 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 no. Let's, let's not go that far out. We're, we'll, we'll have to. No, but it hard. does it does involve that because what do you want when you're outing somebody or like when you are what is a desired like mission yes, statement, right? I don't personally think that of any of the men who have violated me, I've ever had a personal desire to send them to jail and put them behind bars. What did you want? I wanted them to be in touch with their emotions enough to understand that they were responsible for harming somebody, whether they intended to or not. Mm. We're all capable of causing harm. But if you're recklessly throwing your body around, like a lot of people with a lot of visibility do, they feel invincible. You're more likely to cause harm if you're not. It's <laughs> Just develop empathy. <laughs> That's what you want. Yeah. And just understand that we all play a role in this and it doesn't excuse terrible shitty behavior. But I don't know. I think I get so pinned as like this SJW feminazi type of person who Mm. has these extreme views, which I don't think are all that extreme, but compared to other people, perhaps 
I don't know. I, I, I don't think I'd call you that, but I also don't call anyone that really. <laughs> Maybe I just live too much on the internet and like have had, chance. have had 4chan come for me too many times. Well, yes, but I don't listen to those people. I don't either. You and I are similar ages. And yes. um, something really interesting is that you wrote this piece um, a few years back. I think it was 2015. Yeah. And it was, I've slept with 99 people and I'm ready for number 100. Classic piece. <laughs> it, it seemed like that one really blew things up for you. In it, you describe this Excel spreadsheet in which you have cataloged every sexual encounter you've had, I think. Yeah, every, yes. Every time a penis went inside of, you. not not my mouth, but a different hole. Right, right. You can also <laughs> say that on this show. It's totally fine. I know. I was just... Uh, <laughs> organically saying it that way for some reason yeah i don't know how organic it was but it was well it is interesting with language too because it's like yeah what is what constitutes sex everyone has their own barometer yeah um 19 to 21 was the age in which you said most of those encounters happened yes i was thinking before you came over if you were in that age range now in 2018, would you approach mm. sex in a similar way? Could you, mm. given where we're at right now? It's impossible for me to answer because it depends on the variable of, is my dad still alive? Because mm. <laughs> it was my dad dying that caused me to slow down because I was working through my dad problems, which I do have, but it, um, <laughs> I, I am working through. Um was your dad aware of uh, your, like, sexual life? Yes, but let's see. He died when I was 22. Yeah, 22. And I just, my relationship with my dad was emotional, emotionally abusive um, in a way where, like, I was treated emotionally like this surrogate partner. Like... It wasn't overt. It was covert, <laughs> covert assault. Um, and a lot of my hooking up was very much a distraction from the male attention coming from my dad. Mm. Um, and he was a womanizer. And I felt always kind of afraid of being seen in a sexual light by by this person who was like my guardian. And by extremely acting out with sexuality in hookups, it kind of separated the emotional intimacy from the sexual intimacy in a way that felt very safe at the time. And like a very, very, um, gr just a great distraction. Because to this day, I'm like struggling, you know, four years since he passed with being okay with feeling emotional intimacy with somebody I'm sexual with. Mm. So, I guess I would have behaved the same way in 2018, to be quite honest, if my dad were still alive or I hadn't started addressing these problems. But, you know, and that doesn't mean that if you are having a lot of sexual partners, you're distracting yourself from trauma all the time. But it was literally like a game for me. Right. Um, what was the game? Convince a man that you're worthwhile convince a man that 
you are worth like intimacy and paying attention to. And then once you receive that intimacy, run the fuck away. Mm. <laughs> Since you were able to disassociate, you know, sex from intimacy, right? Which is what you were doing. Yes. What were the experiences like with men in the aftermath of sex? Were they like, hey, what's going on? Oh, like during when I like in the actual hookup, like right after the hookup or like yeah. when the relationship had ended? Both. Okay. It was just very, I was probably drinking a lot uh, at the time and it was very much about like going out, being seen. I was living in New York at the time and I was very much like pressed over being viewed a certain way. Um, <laughs> kind of like wanting to be visible and noticed uh, in a way that I'm like, I feel visible and noticed now. And I do wonder like how much of it is like, I feel seen and validated in the world so I can chill the fuck out a mm. little bit. I don't know. I don't think I ever went too emotionally deep with those people. And I don't think that I ever really had a real relationship until after my dad died. Although I had so many things where I was like, I was in love with this person. I, you know, mm -hmm. All the times I thought I was in love so many times, but actually I got along very well with everybody. Even after a relationship would end, I wonder how much of that too is, dating as a young woman who who dates older men primarily and being treated like, oh, well, you're younger, so I know you're not looking for anything. Like, that was the way I was treated right. very, very much. And Both parties uh, were getting something specific out of it. Yeah, maybe. I think I was so focused on external factors at that time, too, like not just what a person looked like, which couldn't matter less to me now. It was like, I've never had a type, but it was just like a person with clout in this way. And it was like almost like star fucking or something. Like I can maybe attach myself to you, which reveals a deep insecurity in me. I think mm. like that, that was ever a thing. Yeah. I don't feel like I've fully moved past that i'm like is that something somebody ever is that nature is that nurture is that inside of me right is there any way to get rid of that yeah because i don't like that i mean that's that's a tough thing to like i love calling myself out on the shitty tendencies i have or like unhealthy patterns and behavior that i'm able to notice that's what's so cool about the spreadsheet too, is like looking back and be like, Oh my God, 2012. <laughs> oh, um, and also not letting myself forget the things I've done because my life doesn't look anything like that right now. Mm. And looking at that is pretty jarring and feeling like I've been multiple people in this body, living this life just with different angles. And I'm like, what's the common denominator here? I've only just wanted to be loved this whole time. I just didn't know how to go about it, maybe. <laughs> mm. When your father passes, what goes through your head? Oh, God. It was two years of really performative grieving, I think, and being like... Performative? I, yeah, in like a, like, I need people to take care of me sort of way, or... Or like, look how sad I am. I am devastated by this very close relationship. It was the first major death I have ever experienced. 
And I I don't want to say that I was like faking how sad I was because it wasn't like that. But I think that it was a tool I wielded for people to invest emotional time in me. Like, oh, she's going through a lot. Like, like she's really upset over her dad dying. Like, let me give her more of my like emotional labor almost. Mm. And I don't think that was like a conscious decision. (sighs) I'm probably getting too meta about myself because when I uh, don't want to actually answer something, this is my therapist said to me, she was like, you get so meta when you don't want to actually go somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try and not be meta. I don't remember those days at all. It's like you just blank out and then you have little scraps of, of a memory of like, oh yeah, I remember calling this person. Well, give me a scrap. I remember talking to people I never talked to before then and haven't talked to since then, like my dad's brother, you know, who I don't talk to. Uh, and his next door neighbor, who's the person who found him. And a lot of lying in bed and knitting (laughs) really wanting the previous partners of my life to kind of come through for me then. And, and nobody, nobody did really, or it was, that's not true. It was interesting who, who came through for me and who did not, you know, like kind of like the, who would like, there was this kind of shit bag I had been dating who was a drug addict and, was a very unhealthy, toxic relationship for me, but was the only other person who cried to find out my dad died and he hadn't even met him. And uh, a person who I thought I was in love with, the the person I thought I had been in love with up until that point, Mm. uh, wouldn't respond to my texts and didn't respond to my texts for like three or four months. And I, I don't know. I think when somebody is experiencing death, people go all types of directions and a lot of true colors come out. Um, and I think it also just depends on whether that person has ever lost somebody before. Mm. Um, because now I can look back on all the times I've been insensitive to others when they've lost somebody and been like, I didn't know what to do. (laughs) Didn't have the, the framework for it. Yeah. And I think, more often than not, when I meet people since then who've just lost somebody, they just want to talk about it without being treated with kid gloves. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is, uh, I imagine how you treat, I uh, have to treat a lot of people when talking about sex is a little bit with kid gloves. I don't think so. I think that... You, you take them off? <laughs> I think it depends. I mean, I think there's a difference between presenting more introductory information but i still wouldn't call that kid gloves because i think kid gloves is missing the point of what the person needs from you almost i think that's what kid gloves means to me it's like oh i know what's best for you and i'm going to give you kind of a one-size-fits-all reaction or something Mm. what happens in the aftermath of your dad dying in regards to your career which seemed to be concurrently emerging absolutely i definitely don't think i would be so out there with my my body and my my brain and my experiences if he were still alive um why is that having a person you want to never see you depicted in a sexual light uh i was already doing the work i was doing i just wasn't in this public eye about it it was 
done privately or I was working for another company. I didn't have my own company. Mm. Um, So, I mean, financially, he died. He left me his retirement fund. You know, by no means did that make me set for life, but that is how I invested in my own company. And I don't have a money man to please. And Mm. I'm my own boss. Right. So, I mean, I guess I did have a money man. My dad was my money man. (laughs) And it's... It's kind of like a, a dark reality. It's like this this thing I got from a very emotionally taxing relationship with a parent. Mm. It's like, okay, well, like I, I guess it's okay because like he gave me the the means to take care of myself moving forward. Right. But will I ever be self made? Probably like I don't know that I can say that. <laughs> what does that mean, self made? <sighs> That's a silly trope that as part of, I guess, the the narrative of like picking yourself up from your bootstraps and like coming out of the Great Depression and blah, blah. I feel like that's what that... You know, when you say uh, <laughs> things that are serious or um, smart, you'll change your voice. You'll change the tone of your voice. You'll do it in like oh, a joking manner. God, that's a good observation. <laughs> a little bit like that. <laughs> Why is that? I'm probably overthinking things. Oh, okay. But, uh... <laughs> did, I make, did I make you self-conscious now? No, I was already being self-conscious and you called me out so that I could be less self-conscious. You did the opposite. Mm, okay. Um, I think I do a lot of voices. I think that uh, I'm so expressive with my face and my body. Mm-hmm. That's and, true. And I think perhaps only giving you the, the voice is causing me to be (laughs) do you feel like there's some that you have to perform in some way i think every yes oh there was almost of getting meta again damn it (laughs) let's avoid that let's ask let's answer the question honestly and straightforwardly okay um yeah because i want like i don't think that just talking about sex will capture people mm-hmm. if there isn't something additional they like about the vessel that's giving it to them. So I want to be a more appealing vessel. You're calling yourself a vessel. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm not getting meta. Damn it, this is so difficult. <laughs> that's totally fine. I didn't know you were going to call yourself a vessel on this podcast. <laughs> but look, your word's not mine. Yeah, yeah, just a sex ed vessel. I'm a medium. Well, why don't we use, I'm not going to call you a vessel. Why don't we use your uh, expertise and, and run through some things I okay. have, some bigger questions Okay. Um, that I think people are, 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 are at least a little bit interested in. Or at the very least, I am interested in them. Okay. Sex talk, when it comes from parents, I, I wonder, you know, you and your dad had your own very uh, specific relationship. Mm-hmm. That affected your sexual being before and after. Did you guys ever have a, a a talk about sex? Was there a sex talk? That was definitely more uh, mom convo land. Mm-hmm. I remember I was like, "You got to tell him I got my period. I'm not telling him that." <laughs> um, and I remember being like, "Like," and I remember it was more like status updates Mm -hmm. 
I think that his way of educating me was telling me about his triumphs and his fuck ups more so than objective education. And I think I got more of the objective education from my mom or she would just be like, cool, let's go to Planned Parenthood. Were they transparent about their sexual past? They were. It's funny. My dad lied more about the fact that he was a pot smoker than the fact that you know, it's like, <laughs> that's confusing. yeah, um, that was like really the only thing I was lied to about is that my dad was smoking weed, smoking the weed. And, uh, it's interesting because I know that I wouldn't have wanted to have that conversation, that full blown conversation with them, but I did feel comfortable getting the resources I needed. I think that I never let my mind wander too far to be quite honest I was not very interested in sex until high school. And what was the triggering experience? Wanting attention. It was like I never wanted to have sex until I was like 19, but I wanted to have sex when I was 14 for the way I could have emotional intimacy to some degree Mm. with more people. Or, like, let me rephrase this. I knew that sex was an easy way to get to a very close place with another person. And it was easier to be physically intimate and get to that close place than to wait or, or, mm-hmm. or to have, develop a relationship outside of the sex. It expedited the whole process. Yes. I wanted that instant gratification and I wanted to be relevant to a man. Uh, God. It's just so depressing to hear myself say that. <laughs> Does it bother you now? Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's so strange to me, too, that it's like all of my life it was experiences with men when it could have been with women or, you know, some someone non-binary or, you know, because as I got older, I didn't just have sex with men. And statistically, I do know that girls who have their earlier sexual experiences with men are way further behind in their sexual development. Um, and I, and I think that like there wasn't this awareness of gender fluidity and that extends into the way sex is even had like, Oh, actually you can have a penis and be penetrated or, you know, like you don't have to be penetrated at all. Mm -hmm. That is a way bigger notion to have grasped. And I think I organically figured that out on my own a little bit. It's just the we're presented such a narrow framework. And if you don't fit into it, like you could be, you know, a heterosexual cis person and, and still just not like society's social scripts for these are so narrow that so many of us find ourselves outside of it. Mm -hmm. And then it leads to a lot of dissonance. Well, you, you wrote that in that article yeah. where you said you were ready for the hundredth partner. Yeah. That you can see how people treat you differently from women who've had less partners. And that you, you read some piece in which 10 women were interviewed and, and, and all of them had said that none of them had exceeded, I think it was 30 or 40 yeah. partners, yeah. something like that. How did that larger conversation about a number affect you? And what do you make about what do you make of that conversation at large? Well, I think it's interesting because I think people who've probably had as many sexual partners 
as I do haven't kept track of it or had this attachment to a number. And I think that, I mean, on the opposite side of the spectrum, we have the people who are all about the waiting until, till marriage and, and virginity pledges and promises. And I think that the number is just like a cultural touchstone for this larger conversation of how there isn't like a value placed upon you based on a number of times you've had an experience. Mm. Uh, it's really strange because I, I think that if we're, if we're talking about the exact number of sexual partners we've had outside of the context of like, okay, I have an STI, I need to call everybody who's exposed. It like very quickly loses relevance because like, who cares? It's, it's like you could have had sex with a hundred people and know just as much about yourself as if you just have really explored your own body really well. And I don't think they necessarily correlate, but in this world where, we're kind of forced to sex educate ourselves. The number does hold a meaning in mm. the sense that like, if you have had interactions with more people, you probably have like figured out some, some common errors, but then beyond a certain point, you're tainted and nobody wants you or you're diseased mm. or whatever, insert whatever stigma, you know, have people made judgments to your face uh, to my face. Mm. I don't think in overt ways that I would notice maybe. I think maybe it's more subtle in the way that I would be treated. But I think that is also just such a direct reflection of my behavior changing. Mm. Like I don't act like somebody who's going to swipe your boyfriend, but like maybe I used to be that person who who would I I you I would be like what's this girl up to? Like I don't know, you know. Were you? <sighs> I've only ever consciously been like the quote unquote, the other woman one time. I wrote an article about that that was, was not very well received. <laughs> um, why, why was it not well received? Because it was just a lot of people who have been cheated on being like, you are the reason lives are in shambles and mm-hmm. my parents cheated and it ruined my life. And <sighs> I mean, I didn't feel great about it when I did it. Mm. I never did it again. Um, that's nice. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, that is nice. (laughs) Hey, like you set me up for it. Just yeah, just knocking it down. Yeah, I I, I have no judgment of it. I I really don't judge myself either. It's I think it's just like I feel like I was like this little bug that was let loose in a maze and I did whatever the fuck I wanted, like with no guiding light. And then I just was like, well, here's where I ended up. This is the the trail of destruction I left behind me. Mm. I think I was probably more emotionally destructive than anything else to people though, because of my own unrecognized trauma, I was unconsciously dragging other people into that trauma with me probably. Yeah. I think that's honestly what is going on in most relationships. Is. With with it, you know, unrecognized trauma rearing its head in ways that resurface in close relationships. I mean, how many people do you know that are like really nice, palatable people, and then you just hear that like they are really intense to their partners or mm. their mother or their family member, and like they choose to funnel all of their their shit into into this one person i've heard that you know 
I don't think I'm that person. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that that is the way that trauma just rears rears its head in more subtle ways. Hmm. I don't know anyone who has figured it out. I haven't figured it out. If a sex educator says they have, I wouldn't trust them. Right. <laughs> well, I, I, and I, and I, I think that's kind of the point of this conversation and the point of your work, which is, look, it's a, it's a day by day thing and there are no clear answers. There's more safe answers, I guess. And there's more, Oh my God. you know, yeah, you had me at the beginning given the the safe answers and then I I think I've I almost cried at one point earlier and now I'm just like hit me with all the <laughs> You did a good job of getting me past the performance that I was unconsciously doing. Well, look, we still got uh 20 more minutes to go. Oh, yay. So, um Here's something. Men and women talk about sex with one another very differently. And I'd like to hear your take on how two women discuss sex and how two men discuss sex. And also moving past that and and, and into folks less binary. Yes. Um, We don't want to. I mean, I don't. We can't go group by group here. Yes. At least the clear distinction. How do you think the two? talk about sex in different ways i think i can really only go on um you can how about this you can give your side i'll give mine yeah okay yeah i'm like i can really only speak for for women um women identifying folks i think that and I, i would say that like regardless of whether you identify how however you identify i think it a lot of what how we were were raised impacts this a lot so i think how we were raised versus how we identify now is is a large factor in this but i think that there is generally more emotional vulnerability for anybody who identifies as a woman in general and i think it clearly depends on the context of who the specific people are i mean that's just such a stereotypical answer they're like oh it's more emotional because i mm that's missing it there's mm-hmm. something more to that i think that there's more fear present mm-hmm. and and more just like am i going like is this safe I mean, it depends is it's it like, safe to share with your girlfriend i think it's the sharing with the girlfriends is the safe part it's like sussing out whether a, a man is safe if you are like interested in hooking up with a man that is mm. um that's the question that is being discussed no no that's not the question being discussed I guess I'm having a hard time answering this question. I feel like the, there is no real generalization I could make. And I'm the kind of person who's just like, show me the research. Right. Um, well, we're, we don't have that here. This is all our own experiences. And, and from my perspective, I've had these conversations with men and women about what the dialogues are like. And I will say I can speak a little authoritatively when it comes to men talking with men about mm-hmm. sex. There's almost no conversation. Ah. Like men don't really say anything. They're like, right. yeah, it happened. I think that's kind of in general when it comes to talking about stuff that it. <sighs> but see, and, and this is where I, I don't, I don't want to disagree with you, but right. I want to, from my experiences where, where I've heard women talk about men and in my family, like my, my mother and, and her friends that I was around is that 
they're pretty fucking vicious. Like, there's some real shit talking happening. And it's really funny. Like, as a, <laughs> as a guy who's, like, there as a fly on the wall, it's very funny. But the way they share is so candid. And I don't know if it's honest, but it's so candid and so amusing. And it almost, it, it, it reduces sex to something that's very trivial. And it's just gossip almost. Hmm. In, in a way that, like, men are so much more private with each other. Like, there's no talk I about... I would agree with that, actually. So, so is that what's happening? I think that that is... A, I would ag- generally agree with that generalization. And generally. <laughs> but you avoided saying that when I initially asked you the question. Well, because here's what I think it is more, is that if you are not perceived as a man in this world, you are generally dealt a more difficult hand. You are generally navigating more oppression and navigating that causes there to be more inherent grappling with identity and questions and desires, I think, Mm. than when you are more able to just comfortably exist without asking questions like men are. And I think maybe that is where that is coming from. And it's not just the, it's not the way that that anybody inherently is. And I think that the tone is set by that struggle and and the resilience that is fostered through oppression. Mm. Say more about that. Or maybe give me a, a specific example about what you're talking about. We've understood the way a penis works for millennia and only... Have... Really? Because I have no idea. <laughs> I think that... There has been such a disparity in the desire to even research or understand a vulva or anything that isn't a penis in any way. Mm. Um, Like phallic sexuality is just omnipresent, whereas unless you have a hand mirror, it might be pretty hard to see any of your sex organs, potentially. And so I think it's twofold. I think having more external genitalia, perhaps from from the sense of like what our body gives us, I think it can be more easy to inherently understand the functions of genitals that are a little bit just you're forced to encounter a penis a little bit more than a vulva. Mm. And I think that there is just generally so much more social myth and also just like a physical difficulty in physically seeing and understanding vulvas that it's there's just more space for this like wait okay so i i mean just like the discussion of the g spot alone i mean you could totally have the same conversation about a prostate for a penis owner mm-hmm. but it's also just like i feel like you call it a, a penis owner yeah because not everybody who has a penis is identifies as a man and uh. you know it's just kind of like a little bit more of an inclusive because like penises we can draw similarities between penises but mm-hmm. we can't necessarily draw similarity between quote-unquote men because maybe they're very different right and um with their genitals you, know, you understand where i'm coming from i get it and like I, I like the the questions I get are so uh, much like looking for reassurance that something you know what this is a theme looking for reassurance clarity running something by me mm-hmm. is something I get more from women right because it's like a man has been socialized to be like you are your own authority and you're the breadwinner and uh, 
pulling the voices out, but uh, <laughs> no voices. No, I, 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 I like this because uh, I think this is something that connects men and women, actually. Although there are plenty of men who do not engage with those larger questions. Yeah. But I think both sides are just looking for someone to be like, yeah. is this normal? I don't really know. That's I don't what really everybody have a wants. Yeah, we just want to know, like, am I doing this right? Maybe people who aren't men are just more comfortable asking those questions. Maybe. Because maybe it's like, like I'm a man. I don't need directions to drive down this road. No, I have a thousand questions. That's why you're here. Well, and also, like, not all, honestly, not all men. There are so many men who are really, like, ugh, I hate, I hate the general, like, categorization because like i know so many men that are just fucking amazing people and i just i need more vocal i need people to be more physically present like i I need Mm -hmm. i need the men to show up more and there are so many men already doing that i'm just like yes more right well here's something on that uh, because i don't want to dismiss what you've said but I, I was going to kind of roll over and ask something else, but I think this is relevant and it's something mm. I talked about last week a little bit. We are in this new era and I want to say new only in name and, and categorization, but not definition because mm-hmm. this has been happening for a long, long time. It's just we're now having a, a more public discourse about consent and, and, and what people want and what they don't want and what they're pressured into wanting. And you're saying you want men to be more vocal. You want them to be there. <laughs> and oh, yeah. he, he, here is something that, that is a problem. And it's, and it's addressed really, I think, beautifully in, in Dave Chappelle's new special where, where he's talking about the, the prevalence of imperfect allies, which, which I think is kind of everyone. I, I count myself as, as one of those people who um, I have done things that I'm not proud of. Nothing like you could write an article about, but that doesn't matter. It's like, I've done things where I've hurt a woman emotionally. Yeah. I've done that and I've been hurt emotionally by but a woman. But was your intention well, to no. set out and cause harm, you know? No, but I actually don't know if intent matters. It does. But it's still pain. Absolutely. Just because I didn't intend pain in a relationship didn't mean that she didn't feel it fully. So my, my point is, there's guys who would like to be there vocally there's friends that you and i have who have done things worse than what i've done and what you've done that mm-hmm. you, you you say are grappling with mm-hmm. issues i have friends like that too i don't know about yours but mine unequivocally almost all of them say hey i would <laughs> i'd like to figure this out for myself too yeah. and i'd like to be there and i'd like to grow as a person but you know, you saw it with the Ben Affleck thing. He tweets some support for, for this movement and immediately he's, I honestly he, didn't follow that. He is castigated, which totally fair. He did some stuff that's that's fucked up. Yeah, but well, the public eye is such a different we can't draw a connection between what Ben Ben Affleck does right. with what like just uh, us, what we you know, amongst our friends, like what we do. That's not talked about in the same mm-hmm. way. And we use these celebrity examples. So my more specific question then is, okay. how do you see 
this getting better for for both parties because you want men to come forth there are plenty of men that would like to but clearly are fearful are scared because anything can kind of be said now and be believed really quickly and and i don't know how to how to find like that equilibrium that that is good for everyone i think that it's more just about listening to and taking cues from the people who are stating their needs, um, like transcending allyship to being an accomplice and actually putting your neck on the line more so than like you can elevate a voice, but then also jumping in there into the trenches with the person whose Mm -hmm. voice you're trying to elevate. And I think that really just depends on the particular situation. But like, I don't know, (laughs) just like white people like need to speak up about racial injustice. Men need to speak up about violence, you know, sexual violence. And they're clearly not the same thing. It's just that we are unfortunately in a situation where like, so there are some people who need to hear this from somebody they can relate to Mm. or whatever, like whatever is stopping somebody from actually hearing what, um, you know, like a sexual assault victim has to say. I think that so much of it, I, I just, it comes back to trauma for me because I'm like, I think the people who are afraid of these things are afraid of discovering some trauma within them or trauma that has happened to somebody close to them. I guess I just want people to know how it really universally affects everybody and I I keep coming back to childhood sexual abuse because it's kind of one of the biggest taboo subjects nobody wants to talk about it but it's happening everywhere mm. um, I think the statistic is like one in four people um, you know whether that be emotional f- physical psychological sexual whatever um, everybody is is so heavily impacted by this and i think it like i don't think it literally lives in our dna but i do believe it's passed generationally down and like i know for a fact that my dad was crappy to women because of what was modeled for him when it comes to masculinity he had a stepfather who beat the crap out of him and an alcoholic mother and I think that he was not shown an example of how you can be a masculine person in this world without being violent. And I think it's like we need to educate our youth moving forward. And I think we've already started doing this. It's not going to be fixed maybe in my lifetime, but I really think that I hope it is. How will we know when it's fixed is the other question too. But it's like the small steps of being like, no, like (laughs) the tiniest choices in the ways we, we raise our boys even. And just like being like, no, it's cool. Like you can like, (laughs) there's ways you can be intimate and non-sexual with other men that aren't contact sports Mm. (laughs) or, (laughs) It's it's so much bigger of a question that I could really 
even address. And I, I guess that in talking about sex so frankly and openly and, and making myself vulnerable before other people, I try to lead by example and be like, look, you can make yourself vulnerable mm. and it is scary, but it's like, it's safe and it's okay. And performing, performing what you think masculinity is supposed to be is not going to help you performing what you think femininity is supposed to be is not going to get i know i performed femininity and it fed into the abuse cycle because i definitely took on a demure role in relationships of mine where i was not doing something to deserve the emotional abuse i was receiving but i was just so complacent and not even following my own guiding light. Like I was just like, well, there's an intense masculine presence near me and I'm going to glom onto that. Mm. I think it's like all of us not performing our gender roles moving forward, which I don't know, maybe that's not feasible for us to work on changing, but like how can we get kids to slowly shift out of this, like these rigid boxes, which do not set up anybody for success. Mm, well, on that, do you uh, have any interest in, in having children? I think so. I think in maybe my early to mid thirties would be the time to have them. If I do. I ask that because I, I guess I'm interested. Should you have a, a, a daughter? Mm hmm. What would you tell her about about being a woman in this world? Hmm. It really just depends how. I mean, I don't even think that, I think the way to teach her how to be a person in this world means like her being in the world however she wants to be in the world and addressing the things as they become age appropriate and relevant because there isn't a one size fits all answer to that because you know before you, like you don't teach a four-year-old about how, what pornography is that's right. not appropriate but you teach them bodily autonomy like you don't need to go sit in uncle so-and-so's lap if you don't want to you don't have to kiss this cousin of yours if you don't want to and like asking them do you want to do this Instead, like the small, the really small things, it's like we pair it, we got to pare it down like to the really tiny things, I mm. think. Like, just like bodily autonomy and knowing that your body is yours, which some of us, you know, myself included, I'm like, oh, it's okay for like my body to do the things it does. Like, to take this in a very different direction. I mean, like I feel weird about manual masturbation for myself. And that's part of the reason I like toys and selling them so much, mm. but it's like, I don't feel like my body totally belongs to me sometimes. Who does it belong to? Other people, the world or like whoever wants it and can overpower me and get it. And that's not the way I actually feel, but that's the way it's felt. Do you think that idea is in part informed by the fact that you have put your body out for public consumption in some way? I felt that way beforehand. So it wasn't just kind of an afterthought putting my body out there because it already felt pretty public. It felt public? It always felt public. And yeah, I don't think there's anything inherently public. I guess that you, if you put yourself out there, you are out there for public consumption. But I guess just like existing in the world feels like such public consumption sometimes <laughs> that... 
I guess I just have never seen them as being so different, but maybe that's just also the times we're living in. Mm. That's interesting. What are you thinking about? How I'm sick of feeling afraid of, of things <laughs> just in general, like fear of, uh, fear of like betrayal and fear of, <laughs> of really big things like um, the fear of somebody harming me. <laughs> I've felt that way my whole life. And that's the kind of thing that you can't necessarily just have somebody who's never experienced that understand if they've never understood that. Like I want somebody to feel, I don't want other people to feel afraid, but I want them to like know how harrowing it is to be afraid all the time and then interact with people knowing that it's possible to, to, to have been this affected by your life experiences or something. Mm. And you think people don't understand? Yeah. How can you, if it's just not something you felt in your body before it's like there, I think there are some things you just can't know unless it's you and that's your life experience. Like, you just never know what it's like for somebody else. And I think that the only way you can interact with other people is by going off of what they give you, you know, like telling you what them telling you what their lived experience is like. And then you being like, okay, now I have more information about how I can interact with this person instead of like, just be like, I know all women like it when you do this thing and get them flowers or whatever, which is like the approach to interaction in Hollywood and I think that Hollywood movies and media have done just as much to damage what we think love and relationships is supposed to look like as porn has if not more I think Hollywood damaged me more than porn and as you know like what love looks like or something do you think you're do you think you're currently recovering yeah yeah and it's cool to catch myself in those moments where I'm like having a thought that is regressive for, you know, where I'm trying to be. Where do you want to be? Uh, content in a way uh, where I don't feel a fear of betrayal. I mean, I'm already... I'm in a relationship currently that is just so fabulous and it's because he was my friend first and because he was helping me, uh, you know, in, in a friend way just for the, the fuck of it and not because we were fucking each other. And uh, yeah, so there's like person things to connect on, not just body parts. <laughs> wow, what a novel idea. <laughs> I don't know. I like what... Mm. Yeah, so definitely still recovering, but it's it's so cool to even just... What were you going to say? <laughs> I was going to say I like watching reality TV, which obviously is not actual reality, but I love um, watching the way that other people... Like, I'm really obsessed with 90 Day Fiance. I'm so sorry to name drop that show, but it's like people who are try forcing relationships to work overseas, and it's it's very much people who are like horny for each other mm. or like they're just like this person is so hot and gorgeous and they've never met each other and they're trying to basically make a relationship work based on first impressions on the internet. 
I don't think there's anything wrong with online dating at all, but it does encourage the, you know, select your partner based on external attributes Hmm. mode of thinking. And I know that for me, at least what has worked is like the person who's emotionally willing to go all the places that I need to go. And he's willing to come with me to those emotional dark places and, and the delightful positive spaces too. That is like, so much more than a photo to me. So I guess I just, I I find that watching people forcing them, like hammering themselves into this mold they can't fit into is a very interesting cultural phenomenon of reality TV that I like to watch, Mm. even if it's manipulated by producers, as I'm sure it is. But I think there's some nuggets of reality in there. Maybe I'm just too Midwestern to really understand what Hollywood is like. (laughs) I don't know. But do you think you've stopped trying to fit into some mold? Sometimes. Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. I think like to take a very literal interpretation of the meaning of mold, I've tried to stop wanting to get my body to a mainstream acceptable place of beauty like I grew up as a dancer like in studios like ballet and such and just have had to stare at my body for a long time in my life and even just being like it's fine if you're tummy goes out past your boobs like you don't need to do more sit-ups like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's literally that basic in my head of like like actually what is going on like all that matters is that I'm okay with me and there's nobody to prove myself to besides me and if I am good in my own book then dagnabbit somebody else will love me too (laughs) are you good in your book yeah I am but connecting the like connecting that that means that it's all okay is an additional step because I let what other people think overpower my own self view Hmm. easily, or I have easily let it overpower in the past. So it's a gradual process. Like, Oh God, it, it really is so weird being in LA too, because like people look different. (laughs) I mean it (laughs) like from New York, from Detroit, I know that if I was in a headspace where people around me were viewing their bodies a certain way, I could easily fall a victim to it. Cause I like, I don't know. I think there is a people pleaser in me who is going to defer to the majority, but with severe limitations, of course. But like, I think I do really learn from what other people are doing and that can be dangerous when other people are doing toxic things. Mm. Well, I have to say that I have learned a, a fair bit on this oh, good. podcast, and uh, I know you have more steps to take, and I think we probably all do, and I imagine you'll take them. Thanks. I like I like that optimism. And Well, I could also be completely wrong, and things can go <laughs> really horribly for you. Nah. I think no matter what happens, there's a, a way you can cast that light on to anything, and you all right yeah i'm glad that we we didn't just stay on the surface 
I am sure we could have gone even deeper, you know, infinitely deep. But like, yeah, I, I want the conversations for other people to go below the surface level, too. Well, look, there's always a potential part two down the line. <laughs> um, Zoe Ligon, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much. Special thanks this week goes out to Ian Chang for arranging today's episode of the show. If you'd like to find out more about Zoe Ligon, you can do so on her website at zooliancomplete.com. You can also read more about her in our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at TalkEasyPod. Um, I'm still wading into the Instagram world, and I think slowly getting better at it but also who really knows if you'd like to drop us a line please feel free to do so at talkeasypod at gmail.com and as always this show is executive produced by david chen graphics by ian jones illustrations by krishna shenoy our associate producers this week are elliot weintraub and ian chang and the show is produced by dylan peck i'm sam fragoso thank you for listening to talk easy We are off next week for uh, Thanksgiving, so happy holidays to all those listening, and uh, I'll see you in December. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 